Hello, X. Hi, X. Hello, X. Um, Hello, X. I hope you're doing good. Uh, I hope that we didn't screw up the earth yeah, too much. Well, I want to apologize for it. Hello, X. Christine Sin here. And welcome, everyone, to our first ever Hello, X Science Spotlight on a seabird that some call the clown of the sea, the Atlantic puffin, one of the many coastal birds who seem to be having some trouble lately. A little bit on the science spotlights. For those of you who've been listening to the show, you know that our journey to imagine lives of the future means that we've been meeting a lot of amazing Arctic researchers over the past two years. These are the people who are helping us to anchor the fiction stories about X in what's really going on in the Arctic ecosystem. While we don't yet have the resources to fit them into all the main Hello X podcasts, we decided to sneak a few extra conversations into the feed for those of you who, like us, are into animals, plants, or maybe you just enjoy a bit of a geek out on ecological systems and want to meet the folks in boots, parkas, and clipboards, or, I don't know, waterproof laptops, who patiently observe baby puffins and their hardworking parents on remote subarctic islands like marine biologist Zoe Burr. For those of you who are more into the creative development of the ex-fiction stories, along with a little bit of science, not to worry. The next episode for you is coming very soon. This interview was recorded in 2017 when Hello X and Ice Nine did a workshop with kids in Svalbard and includes myself, Annelies Steberg, and Valentin Mons, who you will hear just a little bit from. My name is Zoe Burr. I'm originally from Berkeley, California but I now live part-time here in Longyearbyen. Zoe is a contributing member of the Fromm Center in Tromsø, a HelloX partner, and its research project on effects of climate change on sea and coastal ecology in the north. She's also part of the Department of Arctic Biology at the University Center of Svalbard, the world's northernmost higher education institution, located in Longyearbyen at 78 degrees north. Zoe is part of a long-term study on seabirds led by Tico Anker Nilsson at the Norwegian Institute for Nature Research. I'm a marine biologist with a focus on both seabirds and on the study of timing in marine systems. So when are things happening? What made you interested in biology and birds? I think I've always been interested in marine biology because I love nature and uh, living things from puppies and kittens to snakes or anything. But the marine kind of side of thing is probably just because so much of what happens in the sea is unknown. And seabirds are interesting because they're marine animals, but they have their nests on land. So you can kind of access information about the sea by studying seabirds. Were you a kid and you just knew you wanted to be a marine biologist? Yeah, I don't remember specific moments of saying that, but everyone always said, oh yeah, you've always wanted to be a marine biologist. I do remember when I was five or something, I was in Mexico and I saw a puffer fish uh, from a dock. And I remember being so fascinated by it that I just stared at it and fell like face first into the water staring at it. And I think whenever I think about like when I was really excited about marine life, I think about that moment. Did you go to swim? No, my mom, yeah, jumped in after me or something. (laughs) 
<laughs> a little note to parents, if you have a kid who is watching fish in the water and gets so involved that they fall face first into the water, after you save them, don't be too cross because maybe they will emerge as marine biologists. In summertime, Zoe heads out to do field work on Rust, a cluster of remote subarctic islands in the north of Norway. Here she studies kittiwakes, a small seagull species, which we'll be talking more about next episode, and puffins. If you've been lucky enough to see Atlantic puffins in real life, or maybe you've seen photographs, you probably recognize them by their distinctive faces, the way their eyes are set into a white and black mask. I think it's the mask that makes people call them the clown of the sea, but I see something caught between comedy and tragedy. Something more like those sad French clowns called Pierrots, or like Harlequins. Especially in spring when their big beaks go from gray to bright red stripes, and a little yellow dot at the corner of their mouths. The rest of their bodies look a little like penguin tuxedos, you know. Well, I think some of the most exciting things about seabirds are that they're so long-lived. So we're working with these birds that can live up to 30 or 40 years, each really? individual bird. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Did you guys know that? Mm-hmm. No. 30 or 40 years. Mm-hmm. And these birds are also going really far distances to feed. That's something else. This summer we put GPS tags on the kittiwakes and we would put them on, leave the tags on for a couple of days. And by the time the birds got back, we could take off the tag and plug it in right away and see that this bird had just traveled over 100 kilometers in a day or they do that multiple times again and again. So it's and are a, they very specific to the Arctic? What's the distribution like? Yeah, so uh, both Atlantic puffins and black-legged kittiwakes are kind of northern Atlantic and they have quite a widespread in the UK or uh, the east coast of the northeast US, Maine, for example. And you have differences, you know, the puffins, for example, that breed here are much larger relative to the birds that breed on the UK. So even though it's the same species, you have kind of these regional differences. And they also all feed on slightly different things, so it's complicated to... Oh yeah, what do they eat? Yeah. So puffins feed mostly on small fish. So they'll feed on small fish that like to spend time together. So we can imagine a group of small herring, and the puffin will go down and try to pick up as many as they can hold. The record is maybe 40 or 50 fish at one time in their puffin bill. They have this little special structure where they can stretch out their, uh, yeah, below their beaks and just carry a bunch of fish. So they're feeding yeah, different species, though, and sometimes the birds will come back with five different fish, all of a different kind, you know, maybe a herring and maybe a, something related to a cod, a small fish. And Are these fish that are also eaten by humans or that are in the human food chain? Yeah, so definitely some of the fish that are related to cod, puffins are bringing in much smaller. So when the fish are young, they'll catch those. But when those fish grow up, they're commercially important fish. So cod or, um, yeah, and herring is a big one for the puffins. But actually in recent years, for the past 11 years now, the puffins on the island I work, on Hernikin in Rust, haven't had a successful breeding season. In how many years? I think it's this year was the 11th year where um, very few of the puffin chicks have survived to fledge. For 11 years? Yeah. 
Okay, that doesn't sound so great. No, it's a very bad situation um, for the puffins, and it's likely related to these herring fish that they have relied on for many years. And it's a, an interesting system where the herring, they spawn southern Norway, and then the herring larvae drift up the Norwegian coast with the currents that go along the Norwegian coast. And the puffins had a nice system where they would wait for those herring larvae, and when they were time to feed their chicks, they would go out to sea and catch those herring as they drifted up the coast. So it was a very well-timed system. Something has changed in uh, recent years, and the herring that the puffins are bringing into their chicks, we call it kind of fish soup, because when they bring them in, the puffins will pile the fish in their bills. And in an ideal situation, you can see those big healthy fish in their bills. But in the past years, we just see these little larvae that are see-through hanging out of the puffin bills, and it just looks... But they're not developed yet? The, yes, exactly. The herring larvae aren't... They haven't grown to be a, a big enough size that it's really energy-rich. Mm -hmm. And when the larvae are that small, they don't swim together in the same way that the bigger herring do. So the puffins, when they go and they dive down, they can dive to pretty deep depths, maybe, maybe 60 meters, they're searching for food. Wow. Yeah, but these herring larvae are swimming not together in a small group in the same way, so the puffins have to work extra hard to go find all of those fish, rather than if the herring are larger and swimming in a dense school of fish, then the puffins can forage and take many larger herring all at once, and it's uh, much more efficient for them. So the puffins you're studying on the island, which is called Hernikin, Hernikin. Mm -hmm. are you seeing the numbers decline? So the population has been declining. Like How I much? believe it's about three and a half percent every year. And now the population is approximately 330,000 birds, I believe, something around that. Um, yeah. No, it used to be millions of puffins breeding there. Does millions. It, millions. Does it mean and the herring becomes fish higher up, further north around Svalbard? So they don't make it as far up as Svalbard, the currents, mm -hmm. they kind of northern Norway. So the fish will continue to grow, but they're just not at the right size when these puffins need them. And so this is one specific place in Norway. There are other places in Norway where puffins are doing fine and they have enough food to feed their chicks and their chicks grow up and maybe 80 or 90 or even more percent of the chicks in a colony okay. are fine. So puffins all over the world are not necessarily in trouble. It's this one colony. In several places there are poor breeding success numbers so it's not just on Hernikin, but uh, there are places that are doing okay. The kittiwake on the other hand kind of all over the northern Atlantic is doing pretty poorly and people do think it, it is related to these forage called forage fish these small fish that school together that feed on small plankton so people do think the seabird declines are related to these forage fish. In so do way. you work together with people who are looking at those fish to understand what's going on with them? Are they just moving? Are they declining? Mm. Or what's happening with the forage fish? Yeah, so in my specific work, this is actually a big gap in the knowledge of when things are happening at this forage fish level, because to study timing of uh, any group of 
let's just say, yeah, forage fish, you need a lot of data that's taken at multiple points throughout the year. So if there was, for example, a research cruise that went out one time in June, that's not going to help me figure out how the forage fish have changed throughout the season, if that makes sense. So personally, I have very limited data to work with at the forage fish level, but we do have, um, I have a collaboration with some people who are actually oceanographers in Bergen, and they work with uh, models to kind of estimate or model to the best of their ability when these fish are drifting up the Norwegian coast with the currents. Right. Yeah, to try to understand um, if timing is part of the story or maybe it is a result of these herring shifting more northward. Is it known, for instance, whether or not we're looking at a change of behavior or a change in the population in the density of fish? I don't know enough about the fish to say for sure, but I think a lot of it has to do, probably complicated (laughs) everything, but um, both the shifting distribution of the fish and timing I think is part of that. So I would guess can be explained by multiple factors, both the shifting of distributions and how those fish are interacting with other species. Right. Um, So there might be the same number of fish roughly, but they could be distributed differently at different times. Exactly. And do scientists have a guess as to what's driving some of the change? For instance, we hear about warming of the ocean, increased acidity of the ocean. Mm -hmm. It seems like there's a lot of range change, Mm -hmm. particularly around the transition zone between the warmer water and the colder water. Mm-hmm. But what's the word on the street about yeah. <laughs> what's driving this uh, change? Yeah, so I think, uh, as you were saying, with the temperature change and warmer waters are coming further north or kind of the the point between the cold and warm waters, you can imagine that transition kind of just shifting further north. And that's allowing some of the species that need warmer waters to move their own distributions further north. I'm curious to know how many of you listeners have heard about the recent declines in seabirds. I only heard about it last summer, which surprised me when I started digging around a little, because the numbers of species and the rate of decline are both kind of alarming. I don't know if it's because seabirds don't have a lot of commercial value, or maybe they're not as charismatic as, say, polar bears and whales. Maybe... Even people think of birds like seagulls as pests, you know, begging for french fries on the boardwalk. I won't go into all the interesting research and news articles on this, but I will say that the Atlantic puffin is listed as vulnerable since 2012 on the well-known Red List, maintained by the International Union for Conservation of Nature. According to the IUCN, the population Zoe studies on Rust has gone from about 1.5 million breeding pairs in 1979 to only 289,000 pairs in 2015 and has produced virtually no chicks in the last nine years. Another study published in 2015 in the Public Library of Science 1 journal 
by a group compiling a global database on coastal birds, shows that of the seabirds monitored by scientists worldwide, there's been a decline of 69.7% between 1950 and 2010. So why is this important for us? There are lots of worrying things going on right now, and who needs to think about birds? One reason we might want to pay closer attention is because many scientists believe that the rapid decline of seabird populations may indicate long-term and large-scale change in marine ecosystems. These are the same oceans and ecosystems that may become increasingly important in the future for food and other resources essential to us humans, as we talked about in the last episode. We at Ice9 have been thinking and talking a lot about what it might mean to lose the coastal birds many of us have grown up with. Humans have coexisted with seabirds for millions of years, for our entire appearance on Earth, probably. These birds are descendants of dinosaurs. It's hard to imagine a coastline with few or no birds. So for all these reasons, we are making seabirds a running motif or theme in the X stories in this podcast. And how do scientists like Zoe cope with seeing baby puffins who can't survive 11 years in a row? Do you ever get stressed out when you're, you know, you're out there in the field and you're looking at this island with puffins and there used to be millions and, yeah. and now they haven't bred successfully in 11 years? How does that feel for you? What? Yeah, it's really sad to find dead chicks scattered around. I don't think anybody likes to see that. When you're there as a scientist, you also try to think critically about why that's happening. And sometimes it's easy to think it is just a natural process because there is, you know, a lot of animals don't survive. A lot of young animals don't make it to adulthood and that's just part of nature. And then other organisms or animals will eat that dead seabird chick and it's part of the system and cycle so you can justify it that way but then of course you also wonder how much of it is because humans have changed the temperature of the oceans or um, even the temperature of the air could be impacting these birds or uh, yeah is there anything that keeps you going when you start to feel sad or start to feel stress? I mean, I think I'll always want to research ecology and biology and animal zoology. I guess I could see it getting to a point where it's too depressing, maybe. But uh, I think just knowing that it's an important thing to monitor, I mean, we won't know what's happening if we don't study it. So I guess that's what keeps me motivated to work. But um if you could preserve one experience or place, a moment in nature or related to nature that you could actually share as an experience, like in the story that we're talking about, there's a virtual nature app mm-hmm. and uploaded our one memory from each person in the past. 
And the idea is that maybe in the future, some of these experiences won't be accessible anymore. Mm -hmm. So let's imagine that there is this app where you can actually share either with your own kids or grandkids or the future generations, one particular place or one moment even. What would you choose? I would choose being on Hernikin Rest, this island where I study puffins, and sitting in the grassy fields. And the grass is very uneven because all around you there are holes in the ground where puffin chicks are hopefully sitting in there waiting. And looking up and seeing thousands and thousands and thousands of puffins swirling around in the sky. They fly in these kind of big loops around before they enter their burrows. So just sitting there and you can hear them and you can see them and it's just this huge number. And It's not every day like that, they come in cycles, but on one of those days where you have a lot of puffins flying in the sky, it would be, yeah. The number of puffins is declining by 3%, so maybe it won't be happening in, yeah, some years. Special thanks to Zoe Burr. In our next episode, we'll be talking to From Center researchers Jan Ove Busnes and Tone Kristen Reertsen about kittiwakes, guillemo, eider ducks, and more. And we'll hear from Sami language novelist Sigbjörn Skoden and game designer Ismet Bakhtiar about how virtual reality may or may not help future humans like X cope with the loss of birds like puffins and a potentially very different natural landscape in 2068. If you have stories and thoughts about your favorite seabirds, use the voice memo tool on your phone. Yes, I'm pretty sure you have one too. And email it to us at hellox at ice-9.no and all the creative team will see it. You can also find our email through the website hellox.me. If you want to know more about puffins or seabirds or any of the things that we referenced in this episode, please go to the episode webpage. We have links to everything. HelloX partners include Tromsø Municipality, Polaria Science Center, the Nansen Legacy Research Project, the North Norwegian Art Museum, FROM, the High North Research Center for Climate and the Environment with its flagships, Environmental Impact of Industrial Development in the North, or MECON, Effects of Climate Change on Sea and Coastal Ecology in the North, Sea Ice in the Arctic Ocean Technology and Agreements, Hazardous Substances, Effects of Climate Change on Terrestrial Ecosystems, Landscapes, Society, and Indigenous Peoples. HelloX theme music and the music in this episode is by Metatag on Hell Audio. HelloX is produced by Ice9 with Christine Sin, Annelie Stieberg, and Valentin Mons. Associate producers include Marina Borovaya and Annika Vistrom. Sound mix by Nathaniel Gustin. Digital design by Ismet Bakhtiar. Story generator developed by Ferkel Industries. Ice9 is supported by the Norwegian Arts Council, Spadabank, Northern Norway, the Free Speech Foundation, Innovation Norway, and Koro, Public Art Norway. And we leave you with Oh Pity Us by The Odes on their album Live on Not Applicable. Thank you.
We wave our arms and, and agitate our flags and dream in braille and row against the slogan tie and the dribble of the winning side. Parachute would cannot glide or fold ourselves into the hill, inventing invisible inks. The Belgian wink in the hall of mirrors where we slide and sink. Drama queens in the final scene, set in the benighted lighthouse, the dread, dead, drunk keeper is strobing in the sea. Strobing the sea on his knees Dreaming of the long ago Longed for imagined and phantom mother Oh towers, oh steeples, oh spires And a lightning conductor For the once in a lifetime heavenly fire to incinerate the boredom of our lives. Incinerate the boredom of our lives. Oh, pity us. Oh, pity us who cannot love. Inventing invisible inks and draw.